I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I spent a couple of years after we lost Mitch, and I mean, just a, a tiny little fraction of the story because the listeners won't have read the book, but... We don't know what happened to my son. My my son died in a house with his best friend. They've been best friends for years in his mother's house um, at a time shortly before she was to be home. So it's, it was just a, a normal day, a Tuesday afternoon, August 2013. And basically, it was a small town in Alabama in these Welcome to Self-Helpful. I'm your guide, Kevin Miller, and I curate the sea of new personal development messages to bring the most influential leaders onto this show. Join me as I question my guests to better understand their counsel so we can all integrate the wisdom into our lives because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. The Self-Helpful Podcast is presented by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping coaches. Visit Ziggler.com. In this episode, how to recover from loss and pain that you will never get over. We all have trauma, pain, and disappointment that affects us from massive life-threatening events to emotional scars to the loss of a dream. And we tend to judge and minimize our pains. But a point of this episode is if you have a pain, regardless of what level, it just is. And you'll never fully get over it. But it will either hamper you or you can look at it as, well, hey, that was a bummer, but how can I use it to help me? Which is the point. Though we do get on a soapbox about not just justifying anything. I and mean, we can find some redemption, which is, again, as much the point of the episode, but we aren't going to sugarcoat that it makes up for everything with some tidy little bow. My guest on this topic is Dr. Lee Warren. Lee is a war veteran, an author, a podcaster, and an active brain surgeon. 
Uh, he forever impacted how I view my personal faith. The first time I had him on the show for his book called I've Seen the End of You, where Lee grapples with having faith in miracles and hope while looking at someone's brain scan and some tumor and knowing the person's going to die. Well, this time we're talking about his new book. It's called Hope is the First Dose, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. Lee is an expert here because on August 20th, 2013, his 19-year-old son, Mitch, died of multiple stab wounds to the neck. Mitch's best friend died along with him with one stab wound. And whether the knife used to kill Mitch was in his hand or someone else's, whether he was at fault or a victim, they will never know. It's literally an unsolved murder. And this could have been the end of Lee, or as you're about to hear, he has moved on to a degree, not without scars, not getting over it, but finding some redemption. And he lays out how you can too. Lee, you're not the first guest I've had back on the show. Uh, so I, I always enjoy having some history with people, but I, I got to admit, I feel like a special spirit of history with you uh your first book or, or the first not, not the first book but the one that i first when i had you on the show i've seen the end of you has continued to be significant to me and the times that i bring it up with mm -hmm. friends or on the show and and talk about this guy who wrote a book he's a brain surgeon and him being a man of faith and knowing, you know, God can do anything and we should pray for miracles. And yet he's looking at the brain scan and he sees what's in there and he's saying, dude, you are going to die. And the yeah. difficulty of that just resonated, you know, always has with my heart. And so to have you back on is just a special treat. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you, Kevin. I really appreciate it. I have key points as I always do. And I generally tend to go to go after the points, you know, that I want to, I want to hit on. However, uh, as a lead in, I mean, this story is so much about your story about the loss of your son that I knew of, I knew of through the first book, or I'm sorry, through the last book, you know, I've seen the end of you, but not to this level uh, of, of depth. And as I Think about that now. You are now eight years. Is that right? Eight or nine years yeah, since? It's almost ten now. Yeah, almost ten since since Mitch died. And as you say in the book, when something happens to you, when that trauma, that massive thing happens, you do not ever go back. That's you right. are you are not the same. What is today? What's the, what's the, the most tangible difference that you would say, this is what has changed in me. I know there's a lot, that's a big question. Uh, and, and maybe it's even a day by day thing that yesterday it felt like it would have been a different answer last week, last year, today. Um, the last, the last pain you felt, the most recent one with Mitch, whether it was a minute ago or this morning or last night or whatever, what, how would you define it? Wow. Um, so I think that the number one thing is, um, uh, and I think everybody in my family would say this, like we, we have no more, um, naivete around the fact that life can bring you something horrible that you weren't expecting. Like that everybody thinks it's not going to happen to them. Right. <laughs> we were this, you know, 
solid Christian family, try to do things right and you know, work hard and all that stuff. And then my son gets stabbed to death and, and that's not supposed to happen in my world. And which is kind of silly as a, as a neurosurgeon, because I see people every day that fall off the skateboard and hit their head and their son dies, or, you know, some, somebody forgets to fasten a seatbelt and they, and they die and I, or get a, fatal brain cancer. I see it all the time. And even my own brother lost a child when he, you know, 23 years ago. And so I, I don't know why I thought it was never going to happen to me. Um, but I did. And so then I said, I think that's the number one thing, Kevin, is just this idea that, um, you need to live your life with the knowledge that stuff that you think you need can be taken from you. And so it, it would be wise to build your life around things that can't be taken from you. So I think that's that's number one. And the second right. part of your question was, when's the last time something broke me open? And it's it's funny to say this after 10 years, but um, day before yesterday, I was leaving the hospital. Um, I get my phone out to, to call my wife and check in with her. And um, I've never been able to delete Mitch's contact uh, from my phone. I, I just, I just can't do it. He's still on the favorites and the phone number belongs to somebody else now, but, um, somehow I had, I must've punched that and it was up on the screen. So I pulled my phone out of my pocket and there's Mitch's face and his number. And for a nanosecond, I said, like, I want to need, I need to call Mitch. Like he's been gone for 10 years and my heart as a dad was still ready to call him. And then when you, when you go, wait a minute, that that's when it just busts open again. And I'm, I'm walking to my truck crying, you know, like, God, how can I do that after 10 years, but it still happens. How, how different would it have been or, or what is the difference? Would it have been if he had been like one of your patients, let's say a brain tumor. Okay. So he's, he's nice. So go back those 10 years and you discovered, oh my gosh, my son has a brain tumor. You go through what you're used to going through. You have some time, you grieve, you know, there's some wrap up, there's some uh, right. finality there. And then the day comes and his heart stops beating and he's gone. How, how different would it be? Or would it be different uh, in your overall feelings now, 10 years later, than him being the, vic the victim of, a, of, you know, being stabbed in the neck and being gone. Um, you know, that's it, a, it's a tricky question because you don't really know. Um, but I've done, I mean, I, I just wrote a book about it. I've done extensive research into what happens to people after they go through these massive things, as we call them, trauma, tragedy, difficulties, diagnoses, yeah. all these big things that happen to everybody. And I thought in fact, I thought before I wrote up seeing the interview, I thought that it would be easier for me if I had known it was coming. I mm -hmm. thought that. But I have had conversations with, interviews with, become friends with probably a hundred or more sets of bereaved parents um, over the years since we lost Mitch. And most recently, a good friend of ours um, lost a boy who they knew from the day he was born that he was going to need a heart transplant. And he made it 12 years and he finally got to the point where they said, Hey, you got to have a heart. And he got one and he died because of the transplant didn't work. Wow. And so, and I can tell you from, from talking to them, it wasn't easier for them. And, and so I, I think the real answer is we want to say, if only this had happened or that had happened, it would yeah. have been easier for me. But I think the truth is nothing's easier when you lose somebody or when that massive thing happens to you, no, nothing 
makes everybody's grief is is individualistic for them at the time that they're having it. And I don't think you can measure it against somebody else's. Well, so let me go down that road with now, again, yours is unique in that. And I, you know, I even said Mitch, a victim of the stabbing. And the truth is, as you talk about in the book, you will never know. Uh, you would That's assume right. that he was a victim. He got stabbed in the neck, but you know, he, 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 he got stabbed multiple stab wounds in the neck. His friend who was there also dead from one stabbing and, uh, yeah. whether he was a victim or a perpetrator, which you can't even wrap your head around, but you'll yeah. never, you'll never know how, uh, well, again, it's, maybe it's still kind of the same question. Does that still make it worse w without being able to have it reconciled would there be i mean of course you want to think the best of him so if you got news right now god sent a stone tablet down and said hey just so you know uh yeah. mitch was a victim he didn't do anything wrong of course that's got to feel better than if you heard yeah he flipped out and stabbed a guy or something like that um but that need to reconcile is what I'm interested in. You know, that again, you're, man, you're, we're diving right in here, buddy. It's, it's awesome. I, I, I think I spent a couple of years after we lost Mitch and I mean, just a, a tiny little fraction of the story because the listeners won't have read the book, but we don't know what happened to my son. My, my son died in a house with his best friend. They've been best friends for years in his mother's house. Um, at a time shortly before she was to be home. So it's, it was just a, a normal day, a Tuesday afternoon, August 2013. And basically it was a small town in Alabama and these police officers went in and found these two boys and there were three knives in the house that had blood on them. One was in a different room. Mitch had had an accident a couple of weeks before and had broken his right hand, which was his dominant hand. So it was in a cast, right? And so Mitch had multiple stab wounds, eight um, wounds. The other boy had one. They both died. Mitch's body was close to one of the knives, and the other boy wasn't. And so the police said, oh, he must have killed that guy and then killed himself. Case over. They cleaned the crime scene, took the bodies out, didn't call for investigators, didn't call the FBI or the State Bureau of Investigation. They were in the house less than an hour and made the determination of what they thought happened. And then drug screens come back and nobody's had alcohol. Nobody's had drugs. These are two good kids. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So the, the bottom line of that is we had to come to grips with the fact that there was a story here that we never going to get to know that the police cleaned it. It was impossible unless some third party comes forward and confesses to this crime. Like we'll never know what really happened. Did my son have some kind of mental breakdown? Was there a fight? Was there you know, a girl they were fighting. We, we don't, we won't ever get to know that. And so after a while, Lisa and I, we had to make a decision. Are we going to be these people that go on crusades to try to find this answer and demand the truth and all that stuff? Or are we going to just accept? So the, the bottom line is this, that we had to make a decision as to whether we were going to live our lives wrecked by this unknowable thing or if we were going to just have to come to grips with the fact that we lost our son and we had to heal from that and move on and try to put our lives back together in some meaningful way and so i 
I don't think I've said it to God a million times. Tell me what happened. I want to know what happened. But at the same time, I don't really think it would make me feel any better because at the end of the day, you wake up tomorrow and one of your kids' bedroom is empty because they're buried somewhere. I don't think it feels better if they were, you know, trying to save somebody from a house fire or if they died of brain cancer or if they got hit by a car. I don't think you really feel better about the fact that they're gone. You may be able to build a story that makes it noble in some way or something like that, but it doesn't, I don't think it changes how you grieve. That was my question, Lee. That was, that's what I'm looking at. So for all of us, as you say in the book, all of us have something that is massive to us. And, and I want to, yeah. I want to break that down a little bit too. What is, what is massive, but we'll come to that in a second. Um, we all have, we all have a hurt. We all have a pain. We all have yeah. a trauma. We all have a loss. We all have a something that now that you have one that's in an exaggerated way, very mass, very massive, you're a decade past it. Is it fair? Is it realistic somewhat to look at it and to say, whatever your thing is, as you call it, your master thing, whatever that is, the details around it really don't matter. And they're probably just causing you more grief. The, the loss is a loss. Like you said, what, what, no matter what happened, no matter what's reconciled, no matter what's just or unjust, like the police not doing an investigation that now can't ever be redone. No matter that, nothing will change the fact that your pain is because you had a son and now that bedroom is empty and it always will be. And I, and I think what I'm coming to is, does, would it, does it help? Would you say to people, would you counsel to say, let the details go? They're just going to make it worse. Focus on what the pain is. That is it. Deal with that and don't let the other stuff make it even more difficult to get through. Well, I, I don't know if it can be that simplified. I, okay. I wish it could be. Um, okay. You know, Gabor Mate has written about this, about um, trauma. We've always thought trauma is what happened to you. Um, and what we understand from the brain now is that trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what you're the reaction to it that you have, right? That's, that's, yes. that's what you can fix. You can't fix the thing that happened to you. And so I would just say to the listener that has gone through some major things, somebody raped you or somebody robbed you or somebody divorced you or somebody did this thing or, or you developed this diagnosis or whatever it was that happened to you. I'm not trying to say that the events around that don't play into your neuroscience and the way that you grieve and the way that you recover. What I am trying to say is this, that, that you have a, a journey ahead of you for the rest of your life that has to be managed. And your question that you have to ask yourself, I came to this question, like, am I going to be a person who lost his son and that's all I'm ever going to be again? Because I kept running into these people who, who, and I studied them for years. I mean, I'm a good scientist. I'm a good doctor. So I try to, how do I, watch what other people do and learn from it so I can put my life back together now and help my family. And what I learned is that there are people who become defined by the thing that happened to them and their life can never be about anything other than that. You've known somebody, you know, how are you doing today? Well, I'm sad because 35 years ago, this thing happened and that's okay. You can be that way, but I wanted to still be a good dad, a good husband. I've got four other children. I've got four grandkids now. And, and I wanted to figure out how to not be that person who just has that thing that happened, that massive thing. And I didn't want it to define me. I didn't feel like God was calling me to be defined by that. 
And I had to just figure out how to do that. Okay. I got two, two things I'm curious about in that. One is you related it in the same way that I would, because uh, I've had these discussions. I mean, back to what you said a minute ago, Lee. Yeah, I, I've got to the point of feeling like it's arrogant for me to think that couldn't happen to me. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's more acute to me because I've got nine kids. Uh, yeah. my, my odds are higher of something happening, of me witnessing the death of a child before I, before I go. And yet if one were to die, my first thought would be, well, I've got all these others to care for. So now speak to right. those who are listening who don't, who say, man, they've got one person. And if that person dies, they've got nothing. That's the feeling. I want to hit on that or get your thoughts on that. Where would you well, tend seen, to have gone? Go. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, okay, I figured. Your video went away. Did I lose you? Oh, no, I'm still here. You lost my video, huh? Well, let me make a let me make a timestamp. Are you still not getting it? Yes, I hear your audio, but I just anyway, I just was afraid that I lost you there, but I can't I just can't see your face. But um, so so I've seen that before, um, in the setting of uh, people with glioblastoma whose spouses were the ones who were wrecked by the thing because the the patient is dying and the spouse in a couple of instances, they didn't have children and, and really their, their whole life had been built around their marriage. Right. And so I've seen people who had to come to grips with the one thing that they thought they would always have. They no longer have. Yeah. Lee, are you still seeing, are you seeing me yet? Nope. There's a little, a little K and then like a, like a Wi-Fi type. There you are. Now I'm back. back. I have no idea yeah. why. I don't either. Okay. Well, let me make a timestamp again. Sorry about that. That's okay. <clears throat> All right. Here we'll pick up again. Well, the other piece of that to you saying, I don't want to be the guy where that, you know, that's, that's who I am. The guy whose son died. Yeah. Um, you talk about that later on in the book where you say, when your pain becomes an idol, yeah. Un unpack that for us. Well, it, it, something I just thought of when you were saying that, um, before I get to the idol part, like I remember uh, one of the things that helped me turn around, Kevin was, a few months after Mitch died, there was another surgeon. I don't, I didn't put this in the book. Um, there was another surgeon that I wasn't really friends with. I just was, associate, I knew him. He knew me. We, we didn't ever socialize or anything, but he came up to me one day. It was the most interesting thing. And he, he's kind of a rough and tumble kind of, you know, outdoor guy. And he just, he put his hands on my shoulders, kind of braced me and looked right in my eye. And he said, I don't know what to say to you but I just know this, your son wouldn't want one event to have a 200% mortality rate. Wow. He wouldn't want you to die too. And you got to live to honor him. And it was like the most profound thing somebody said to me is one of the side trips into this conversation will probably be like, what are some of the things you ought not to say to people when, when something bad happens? That was a really good thing to say. Like, like, I don't know what to say. It's really hard, but you can't die. 
because Mitch wouldn't want you to die. And I was like, holy cow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. So now in the context of that, like, it's so alluring, Kevin. It's so enticing to sit in the pain. And I can call it back to mind right now. There's a couple of songs I could play that Mitch liked or or I could look at. I sometimes did it for years and I still do. I'll go into my photos and pull up the folder. I have a pictures of him and I can just put myself down in this in this spiral of memory and, and loss and, and sit with him and try to somehow find this way down to where he is. And, and it, it metaphorically, you know, this, this, this idea that I could somehow get sad enough to understand what he was going through when he died. And, and it's so enticing to do that because trauma kind of beckons us with this, like you, you'll never feel better than this. Your life is over. There's no future for you. you you're always going to be afraid of, you know, the future now. And, and what happens is it's like, it's like an altar. Like you, you can, you can sit there and put this thing that happened to you on the altar and you can worship it and it can become your entire universe. It can become all you think about, all you're known by all your friends and family have to sort of, you know, they know there's four or five days a year that they better call you and they better, you know, send a note and, or you're going to be wrecked and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and you can do that. And it's not always, possible not to do that for some people, I think. But I, I just knew, especially after my friend said that to me, my colleague, that's not what God is calling us to in our lives. Like we're not supposed to be focused on something that happened in the past to the extent that we can't live the life in the future that we still have. Because if your heart's still beating, like there's some reason why you're still here. And so I started thinking more in terms of there's this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that says, since then we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, you know, with faith and cast off everything that hinders and easily entangles. And I thought I started thinking about Mitch as one of those witnesses who's, who's up there. And he, and I would think I actually had a lot of conversations with myself, like oh, Mitch wouldn't want you to do that. And like, Oh, Mitch, he's going, yeah, dad, that's do that. That's a good thing. Do that. You know? And so I started like sometimes having these little, fantasies in my mind about what he would be proud of me for. And so then I thought, well, maybe instead of letting his death define me and wreck me and ruin me, maybe I let it better me. And there's this passage in Isaiah that says, I've refined you, not like silver is refined, but I've refined you in the furnace of suffering. And so that these God's saying to this prophet, that I put you in a situation and I burned you up and you came out of it on the other side somehow bettered. And that's one of those things that you can't process early on after grief because it's one of those, it sounds like one of those platitudes that like people say, Oh, it's all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. Right. Romans eight twenty eight. terrible thing to say to somebody right after they lose a child. But the bottom line is this, that at some point it became missional for me. It became important for me to try to make the rest of my life one that tells a story that Mitch would be proud of. And that felt like a goal that I could shoot at that would, that would help me to recover because I was trying to do something to, to sort of take the story of my life and make it a notable one for his benefit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to think about 20,000 breaths, according to the EPA, 
the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top-tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yes, yes it does, and... Gosh, I find myself, Lee, wanting to, this is why I love getting to do this show, because this is what I'd ask you if you were, we were sitting over drinks uh, right now to think, because I I do, I think about this. I literally do. I'm not morbid uh, with it, but I, 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 that's my perspective is it's arrogant for me to think that I will outlive every one of my children. I remember my grandfather uh, weeping to me uh, when, when he had a child die, he says, nobody should ever have to see the loss of their child. And I remember, I remember yeah. that starkly there. And now here I am with a lot of children and goodness, it's not like I'm expecting one of them to die, but I just think there's a higher right. possibility. How do I prepare for that? How do, how do I look at that? Uh, my thought, a thought is, and it comes along with some of the, some things that I've been reading and studying is some aspect of letting go in regards to attachment. That can I look at that kid and appreciate 
my history with them, their birth, uh, everything that I've experienced with them, the person that they are now that is, and I've got older kids like you do now that they are separate. They're leaving, leading separate lives, but can I do that? And if, can I let go? And is that a way to do it to somehow they're a person and, and, and we, I'm their father and we do have an attachment, but to, to somewhat unattach my, I don't even know. I get there, there's where the question is. That's what I'm grappling yeah. with. What, what would you, what would you counsel me in? How- I, I don't think so. I, I don't think detachment and lowering of expectations is the pathway to happiness. Like the, um, Dennis Prager wrote about that and his book about happiness, which is a good book, but he basically said, the, the the perfect path to happiness is to not ever expect anything to work out the way you thought it Which would. Which is terrible. That's terrific. Yeah, I can never it, go. Yeah, the secret to happiness is just terrible. Lower, lower your expectations. Yeah, just, you know, it'd be great if all nine of your kids made it to their <laughs> their whole life. But if if it doesn't, it's okay. You know, they were good kids. You just can't. Yeah. I mean, that's unrealistic, right? Nobody nobody's like that. And I've seen in Iraq when I was there in the war um, back in two thousand four and two thousand five. Like I've seen adults who never expect their kids to live to adulthood because they live in war their whole life. And, and it's so common for two or three of your kids to die. You have enough kids, you hope one or two of them make it to adulthood. And those people, they have a different kind of peace of mind and happiness than we do. Like they don't expect everything to go well for them. Right. And so that was an aside, but, but I think that I, I, I just don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is this, and this is why in fact, a little distinction between I've seen the interview in this book, Hope is the First Dose, is this. In I've seen the interview, I told you a story of my work with people with brain tumors and who, people who were dying and trying to understand how to help them when I couldn't fix them with surgery and how to help people find hope in hopeless situations. And then as I was thinking I knew enough to write that book, that's when Mitch died. And then basically I wrote the book to say, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And you really need to find faith because you don't have anything else once you lose the things you think you know. And so that book is memoir and it's about what happened and kind of tells you that we made it. This book I see as my prescription to you as a doctor to say, here's how we did that and here's how you can do it too. And that's why I was so vulnerable and open. And the first of it is to just, you need to understand what it's like to lose a child and go down in that hole with me so that I can then show you how we figured it out, right? How for us, this treatment plan that we put together for ourselves, and you're going to have to put one together too. That being said, I think the answer is more along the lines of don't not expect your kids to survive, but also understand this very important piece. When I researched how people respond to major things that happen to them in their lives, I figured out that, that the number one fact, and we can talk about all those different groups of people if you want to later, but the number one thing that separates people who can go through hard things and find happiness and hope again from those who are wrecked by them is their ability to separate how their life feels to them from the circumstances that occur to them. So if you can learn how to separate your sense of hopefulness and resilience and, and purpose and all those things from the actual events of your life, which in other words, it means that you're building your life on stuff that you can't lose, that you're, you're saying, I understand that massive things happen. I've got a plan in place for how I've responded to them when they occur. I'm going to be grieved like everyone is, and I'm going to be for a while um, un, 
sort of unanchored by this extraordinary thing that's happening. But then I'm going to, over time, trust the process that I'm going to be able to zoom out and see that these extraordinary things in each of our lives are ordinary things in all of our lives. And that sounds funny to say, but if you unpack it a little bit, it's it's true. If if my if your son died tomorrow, Kevin, it would be the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened. But in you live in Denver, right? Somewhere, Colorado? Uh, yeah, Colorado, outside of Colorado Springs, yeah. Okay, so you live outside of Colorado Springs, and that day that your son died, somebody else's daughter died, right. and somebody else had a brain aneurysm, and somebody else had some amazing, beautiful thing happen to the the, the bottom line is. These extraordinary things individually are very ordinary parts of the human experience, and all of us go through them. That's why I say the massive thing is coming for everybody, <laughs> and that's not to be morbid. It's just to say that the, it's a fact. So if you want to, if you want to build a resilient life, and you want to also find a, a re- repeatable process for what to do when you go through these big things, you in, you need to start by saying, "I'm not immune to this." Like that, this is possibly and likely going to happen. In fact, you don't know any 200-year-old people. And so that means that either you or your spouse, one of you is going to die before the other one does. So that massive thing is coming for you unless you die in the car together, right? And then your kids have a massive thing of losing both their parents. So the, the bottom line is this, that that I keep saying that, the bottom line, <laughs> the, the, the result of it is this, that that being aware of the fact that everybody goes through these things is step one and step two is to say, okay, I can either just be aware of it, but then be completely blindsided by it when it happens to me, or I can try to build myself a system ahead of time for what I'm going to do when it does happen to me. And that's when I realized we teach everybody how to do CPR, Kevin. We teach everybody how to change tires, but we don't teach anybody. What are some tools you can use when something really bad happens in your life? So you're not completely destroyed by them. That, uh, building a system. I mean, that feels, that feels like the the thing that I want to look at. I want to be becoming as my good friend, Randy would say, I want to be becoming the type of person that can withstand it, that can be resilient, even feel it completely be devastated in a sense by it, but then to be the kind of person who can withstand it. Okay. Well, I do want to go into some of these aspects of the book though. I also just for my own benefit and for others, uh, I, I want to, here's a, here's a, a little segment of the show here. Yeah. The worst things to say to somebody who's, <laughs> well, seriously, cause I, you know, to a lesser degree than you, but when, uh, when my first son was born, he spent, um, well, we had a long journey. He had, well, gosh, he, he had a little, uh, brain aneurysm at five days old, mm. had a little wow. seizure and it, uh, we took him in and that caused hydrocephalus. And then he wow. had, uh, he had he had epilepsy uh, for a lo- lot of his life. He was actually a status epilepticus, which was yeah, if he had a seizure, wow. it wouldn't stop. And uh, and then you know we could say it a hundred ways that a miracle happened. He grew out of it, whatever. But uh, at, at yeah. the point of looking at at surgery to remove the offending you know section of his brain, uh, he stopped having seizures. And um, wow, yeah, great, great story. However, anyways, the point of that was that within that, the stuff that we heard from people, and I got to say, just because that was the culture that we were in, especially from the church, went from offensive to just ignorant 
but on the other side, though, when I find myself in those places, I know enough to be careful about what I say, but I still feel like, oh, my, it's so what on earth do you say to somebody? Yeah. But uh, yeah, at the top of the list, you know, uh, is of the things of, you know, it'll everything. God works all things, you know, out for good. Well, you know, I wish he wouldn't have used this one. Uh, yeah. To, to do such things. And yeah, what, what tops the list for you? So yeah, there's some, there's some things that you should write down in your, in your notes. If you're journaling this episode and you should never say them to somebody that's hurting. And number one is, um, for, especially when children die, I don't know why we do it, but we do. God needed another angel. Uh, yeah. That's the worst possible thing. First of all, it's terrible theology. People don't become angels when they die. It's just not true. That's not what happens if you read the Bible. We don't become angels. And if God needed another angel, he would create another angel. He wouldn't take my son, yeah. right? So that's just a terrible thing to say. It's not true. Doesn't back up, not backed up with theology. Don't say that. <laughs> another thing is God needed him more than you did. I mean, the bottom line of that is, God's a big bully who's going to take my son because he needs him and, and he doesn't think I need him. And God's got the whole universe. Like, why would he need my son instead of me having my son? Right. So, so don't say that um, again, bad theology and, and really just some of the things that we say can actually injure people and create their own traumas and own set of grief that they have to think about. And so don't say that. Um, I got a text message from somebody. So this is a new, a new technological way that you can injure someone when they're grieving is, is by using emojis or um, slang. So somebody said, I heard about your son, OMG. And then the, like the face, like the scream face emoji, like I understand the sentiment, right? But it's, it's like, can't you just like actually send me a text and tell me how sorry you are or call me? Like little, you have to send little irreverent, a OMG, irreverent, yeah. right? So those are silly things that, that, I mean, it's funny to say, but it really happened. And, and when it does, it, it hurts. And so the other thing is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Romans eight twenty eight idea, which is all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. So don't tell somebody God's going to work some good out of this, at least not early on, that, that there's a backstory to that that ends up being true later on. But when you when you're in the acute phase of an injury, you don't need platitudes to try to make you feel better. You need people. My friend John Swanson, who's a, ch a chapel hospital chaplain, says, "Show up and shut up. Like, like show up, put your hand on them, give them a hug, tell them it's hard. I know this is hard, and then just be quiet and let them tell you what they need to talk about. Right? I think that's helpful." Well, thank you for that. That's I, I, I really felt like that's a service to people to hear that and yeah. because we so want to lift somebody's spirits. We want to help them. And it reminds me even of uh, Vienna Farron's book, The Origins, you know, uh, or, I mean, I'm sorry, not her book. Uh, I'm thinking of a different book of uh, Whitney Goodman's book, Toxic Positivity, where we want yeah. to come along and make it positive and and uh, we can often do a lot of harm in that. Well, yeah, to the key core, you know, of the book, I mean, so much of it, I wrote so many notes around it, Lee, just in the aspect too, of, of what you said to not to minimize what happened, but for yeah. you to say, I mean, how can we minimize that your child died of you know, stabbings in the neck? We can't, we can't minimize that, but he's gone. You're left here. You're left yeah. here. His siblings are left here. And what matters is how they deal with that. And as you're saying, it, it, it goes around how we feel about that, which does come to that desire for rec. I mean, gosh, what are all the words, you know, reconciliation, 
justice, revenge. I mean, all the things that we do and nothing changes the empty bed, uh, the empty bedroom, nothing changes that. And ultimately now we're just in a mind game to figure out how can we recover from this. And yeah, yeah, as you say, you know, nothing changes what is, it's just how we feel about it. But uh, people, especially people with the trauma to the degree that you endured and especially at the beginning, that feels offensive, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. You're not ready for it yet. And, and I mean, understand too, the, the folks listening out there, th- this is this conversation that we're having is 10 years after this massive thing happened yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't having these conversations a month after or a week after or six months after because you are grieving. And and so so first of all, give yourself permission to grieve. In fact, I think it's really critical that we say this, Kevin, I, I, I use, I don't know if you're listening you're a spiritual person or not, but this still is really relevant to you because you're going to go through these things, how, whatever your background or philosophy is. And, and, and all of us read and all of us study and all of us look at, at ancient literature or philosophers or Stoics or, or, you know, John or Mark Twain or somebody in the past that we read and learn from. And for me, it's just always been scripture. I, I, I use scripture. So I, I take a lot of lessons out of there and some of them are in the book, but this isn't, this isn't a conversation that we're having right now. That's irrelevant to you. If you're not a person of a believer. So here's, here's a story that I want to tell you that's important to this. There's a guy in the old Testament of the Bible named David, who was a King and he lost a son and he lost a son because of his own actions, basically. And this would be relevant to you if you were driving drunk and you had a car wreck and your son died or if something happened and your child died as a result of one of your actions. I had a friend who gave his son a bone marrow transplant when his son had leukemia and the boy had an allergic reaction to the bone marrow and died. You imagine that like he, it's not his fault, but, but he had, he owned it like it was his fault, right? He, he had this horrible grief because he thought he killed his son with his own bone marrow, which is tragic. But in the old Testament, in this story, there's the boy is, is dying and it's pretty clear that he's going to die. And David is grieving and he's praying and he's fasting and he's begging God to not make it so. And then the boy dies. And the next sentence in the book is in the Bible is he got up and washed his face and changed his clothes and asked for something to eat and went back to the business of being the king. And the guys, the the advisor said, what are you doing? Your son just died. And he said, I can't change it now. I just got to get back to work. Basically. That's my paraphrase. Obviously it's not the King James version, but so, what happened after that in the story is that this guy's family becomes a disaster. Kevin, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. Um, the, uh, another one of his sons kills the other son in revenge for raping the daughter. The father has an estranged relationship with that son who murdered his other son. And that kid who did the murdering and is estranged from his father ends up trying to overthrow his dad and take over the kingdom. It's a nightmare. And if you look at it, zoomed out to the 21st century and understanding what happens to trauma and how we grieve, that's a perfect story of the kinds of terrible things that happen to people that don't grieve properly and don't put their lives back together after something bad happens. So if you substitute say Lee Warren in 2013 and my son dies and I decide to deal with that by going back to work and having a couple of bourbons every night and I never really heal from it, then there's going to be some ripples of that trauma through my family for generations to come versus if I figure out a way to make it 
where I can heal from it or try to heal from it and put my life together in a way that, that my rest of my kids and family see me taking steps to recover from this thing and they can follow me in doing that. That's going to tell a better story three or four generations from now than if I drink myself to death and my wife leaves me and I become this person who was just destroyed by this event. Right. So you see the difference? Yes, I do. I'm curious about grieving properly. Um, I am a person who has not done a good job of being in touch with my emotions to begin with. Yeah. Uh, never even felt like I was stuffing them. I just didn't have a place for them until I couldn't ignore them anymore. And so now I'm right. now here I am trying to figure that out. Um, I, I let me to exaggerate the concept a little bit. This was not the story. So Hal Elrod, a lot of people know Hal Elrod. He wrote a book called Miracle yeah. Morning, Miracle Morning. Uh, and they know him for that. Part of his story that I don't know if it's even that much of a focus of the book, I'm sure it's in the book, is that he was in an accident, got hit by a drunk driver, guy swerved over, and he's yeah. in bed being told he'll never walk again. Yeah. That's the diagnosis. And he shares that his in his life prior to that, back to what you talked about, kind of building a system, he had building been building a system just all, uh, in regards to negative thoughts and kind yeah. of the five minute rule type thing. Okay, something bad happened. I'm going to be really irritated for five minutes and then I'm going to go on. Well, he had really been that that had been his life. So now this massive thing, as you would say, happens to him. He's in the hospital yeah. and he's just kind of going, this sucks. And but you know, I got a life to live and goes on to the point where the doctors told his parents, I think he's, I think he's not quite right. He's not dealing with this. Yeah. Right. And it's, I think it was his dad finally came to him. So I mean, the docs think that you're not dealing with this well, cause you're just being happy, go lucky. He said, dad, I have been training for this for a long time. And I know that sitting here and wallowing in it is just not going to help me. If, if I'm going to have any hope of anything good, I'm just going to go on. So that's an exaggerated point because it, it, it's, you know, all, I, you know, every trauma is not different. Every massive thing uh, or is, is not the same. I'm sorry. Uh, and right. so I don't want to minimize anything here, but play with that as far as grieving properly. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's really important to say this. I keep putting disclaimers out. We're, we're having this conversation 10 years topic, later, yeah. but that being said, we have a, a societal familiarity with this five stages of grief from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that, that everybody knows, denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, acceptance, right, or depression, acceptance. And the problem is we've, we've culturalized that model that Kubler-Ross came up with. And we've, we've tried to tell people, okay, well, you're in denial now. Oh, now you're in anger. Now you're in, and, and we say, oh, well, that stage shouldn't last more than six weeks. Or, you know, we try to, we try to put parameters around this. Here's the button. The truth is she didn't write that about what to do after your mom dies or what to do after your husband leaves you or what to do after the pandemic destroys your family business. And, you know, you're, you're penniless and homeless. He, he, she didn't write that to talk about that kind of grief. She wrote it. It specifically was her research on people who find out that they're dying and what happens to them. Mm. And so the, the five stages of grief were, were specifically developed as 
sociological look at what happens to people who know they're dying and what do they do next? They deny it first. They become angry about it. They start bargaining with God. They get really depressed and sad, and then they finally accept it. But it doesn't apply very well to grief that happens to you from other things. It, it, it's similar. But my, my point about this is don't put yourself in this pressure cooker of thinking that you're not progressing through the stages properly or thinking that one stage is taking you too long. Because the truth is what I've experienced and I've seen it with all of our kids and family members and Lisa and I both is you go back and forth. Like you'll be super angry one day. And this happened to me three months ago. I just woke up one day and I was really mad that my son died. I'm just mad. I don't want to be guy that lost his son. It, it happened. I'll tell you what happened. Um, somebody got married about his age that we were friends with. They got an invitation and I thought, I'm never going to know what his kids look like. Never going to know what is what kind of woman he would have married. I don't get to see that. And I got really mad. I just got myself in this real grumpy, angry state. And, 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 and what that means is that you're going to grieve over losing somebody or whatever it is. You're going to grieve in some way for the rest of your life about that. And you'll come in and out of it and it becomes this different thing over time. But you're going to grieve for the rest of your life. So, so how do you grieve? Well, and I think, I think the, the long winded answer to your very short question is this, that to grieve well means to give yourself permission that it takes as long as it takes. And it really is never, it's really not an ending process. There won't be a time when it's really over because you'll still always be sad about that. So understand that it takes a long time. Understand that it's okay to go back and forth from one stage to another because those stages weren't really ever defined for that particular model in the first place. And understand that everybody around you in your family and in your world is also grieving. And so there's times and days when in the early phase when I'm really pretty okay somehow inexplicably and Lisa's having a really bad moment mm -hmm. right and what'll happen then is I'll get sucked into her bad moment and it'll turn into one of mine or sometimes I can help her pull up into a better moment and so so it's dynamic it's familial it's individual but also relativistic at the same time and it's just this murky labyrinthine process so how do you do it well you you give yourself permission to take the time it need, that it takes you give yourself permission to go back and forth you make sure you have a covenant with yourself not to let somebody else define what that process ought to be for you and that's something that's going to happen to you i promise you somebody's going to come along in six months or a year and say shouldn't you be over that by now they may not say it specifically but that's the message right is why are you still sad about that? It happened two years ago. And if you've been through something like a divorce or something like where somebody didn't die, that's pretty common. I think people put some pressure on you. You need to get back out there. You need to do your thing. You need to get over this. You know, that happened a long time ago. You should be okay but with it by now. And so don't put yourself in that kind of pressure because this process is a lifelong process and you, you will progress through it if you find yourself a good plan and a good path. Um, but nobody else can define it for you. You know, there's probably um, on the other side as well, that if you are dealing with it well, that somebody's going to be offended that you're dealing with it well, especially when they are. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. And it's interesting that you said, you know, shouldn't you get over it? I mean, that's part of one of the, uh, gosh, let me go down to the, the headlines of your book. Uh, yeah, part one, when the thing happens that you never get over, 
And that just yeah. strung out, stuck out to me because as you talked about, th your son died, that changed you forever. You will, fair, you will never get over it. You're not supposed yeah. to get over it. Nope. It's not helping us, that perspective. I, I even look at that, Lee, in the aspect of overcoming. You know, you're supposed to overcome whatever, your weakness, your fear, your whatever. And, and as I've gone on, I finally kind of let go of that, at, at least the concept of overcoming, that it's not eradicating it. I, I'm never, I don't think right. I'm ever going to be rid of that, whatever, that fear, that weakness. Now I hopefully overcome it in learning how to be resilient or how to manage it and get the results I want anyways, but I didn't do it right. by eradicating or erasing that thing. Cause I don't think I ever can. Is that fair? Absolutely fair. You can't get over it. Um, my, one of my daughters, Kaylin, she was still in high school when Mitch died and, and she had to go back to school, you know, she had to graduate high school. And there was a day when she said uh, she was looking at a picture of her brother and I was standing behind her and I heard her say it to him. Like she was talking to him and she said, I got to, I have to carry on with my life, but I'll never move on from you. Wow. And it was just like, boom, this little girl this my 15 year old, 16 year old daughter just said something so profound that it's become like a mantra in our family. Like we're, we're carrying on with our lives, Mitch, but we won't ever move on from that moment. And that's kind of one of those quantum physics things. So in quantum physics, the, the nerds, I mean, the smart people that understand that stuff, that there's this quantum physicists don't think brain surgeons are very smart, by the way, that they're, they look down on us like, Oh, you're doctors. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know very much. So the quantum physicists have discovered that at the quantum level, when, when you get compressed things down to the very small, the, the subatomic particles of the universe, that an electron can basically behave as if it's in two places at the same time. And it's impossible with our math and our understanding of you can't be in two places at one time, but an electron can, they can detect it doing stuff in two different places at the same time, which what that means is it is possible for you to have something devastating and life altering that you will never get over. And it's possible for you to have a purposeful, meaningful life that can include words like happiness and joy again at the same time. Those two things become true over time. And what happens after massive loss or massive pain or whatever it is you're going through and sometimes it's not one massive thing. It's a whole lifetime of little water torture, little things that you feel like you're never going to be okay because your life just keeps going the wrong way. But but at first, the the electron seems to be in one place and it seems impossible that two things can be true. And it just seems I'm always going to be sad. I'm never going to be okay. I'm always going to be broken. I'm never going to get over this. But over time, you start being able to separate the, the testability of those two truths and find out that they really are both true that, okay, that there's a way that I can get my life to where Mitch's story is a part of it. And it's a devastating part of it. And it's a, it's a, it's a pivot point for us. Our families, it's a new creation story. It's a, it's a new beginning for us, but at the same time, our life can still have value and meaning and purpose. And, 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 and that's how I think that's part of grieving. Well, is, is to get to that place where you can say, this is going to be a thing that happened in our family. Not it's a devastating thing. It's a horrible thing. It's an unsurvivable thing, but it's not going to be the thing that happens in our life because we still have 
children. We still have grandchildren. We still have a life. We have a marriage. We have a, a business. We have, you know, all these other things that, that God's called us to in our lives. And, and, and that just can't be the thing. It has to be a thing. Well, and just to give credit back to what we talked about again, and if you're hearing this and if you have the big trauma that's happened to you or is going to, and you feel like, well, I don't have all those things that Lee has that he talks about, that those are things that are ahead of you that are still to live for. And, and I do, yeah. I do want to ask about grieving. I'm trying to think how to say it because I, I am not trying to justify, you know, uh, the grieving. I mean, I think there can be redemption in anything. Thank goodness for that. But I don't know if I would choose the massive trauma just for the redemption of it. That's my preface to pulling out something that you had in the book. And I'm going to pull it out. Uh, it's two Bible verses again, which I believe that regardless of your faith, uh, belief, you, you, you folks as listeners that it's highly relevant, uh, but this is out of the Bible. John, in, you pulled out John 16, 33. He, God yeah. promised that in this world, we would have trouble. And I want to add on to that. We would have grieving things to grieve. Yeah. We would have grief. And then pair that with John 10, 10. He, God promised that he came into the world to enable us to have abundant lives. So my point yeah. is pairing the trouble with the abundance in the aspect trouble grieving in the aspects of can you've got me thinking about this Lee can I even is the level of abundance that I am able to experience even possible without a certain level of trouble and grieving I, I don't think so um, I, I think if you somehow managed to live a charmed life and you never had anything bad happen to you and you died in your sleep at a hundred, I think you would, I think your life wouldn't be as rich. And that sounds weird because I don't mean to say that losing my son has enriched my life. I don't mean that at all, but it's, again, it's one of these quantum physics things where th this can be tails and this can be heads and they're both true at the same time. Yeah. Coin lands on his side somehow. So, so what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think, just you remember the biodome? This is a random. It sounds like a random tangent, but it's not. That back in the eighties or seventies and eighties, they had this biodome, yeah. this experiment where they put people inside this controlled atmosphere, and they were going to try to see if they could build kind of an Earth-like environment on another planet or something. So they put these guys in there for two years, and they had all kinds of problems. And one of the things that they had problems with was they could grow plants, but the trees would get to a certain size and they would die. It would fall over. And they figured out that the reason the trees weren't able to sustain their own weight in that environment is because there was no wind. And they figured out that the wind is what gave the little trees resilience and strength as they got bigger. Wow. And that trees that had never been exposed to wind didn't have any ability to tolerate gravity. And I think that's the answer to your question. That's that, brilliant. That if we live a life that was, was never challenged, we would never understand what a real life is. Okay. I'm sitting here typing. That's a, that's a mic drop moment. I'm not done yet, but that's a mic drop moment. I, I love that. And I, 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 I mean, I remember the biodome. Um, I don't remember that story. It makes complete sense. I and mean, we know that if you support a tree, I, my grandpa taught me that you take a tree and support it. It doesn't get strong. Um, right. I didn't think about it in regards to wind, turbulence, trouble, grief. Um, I want to, I want you to play with me with, you call it that massive thing. Um, we talk about trauma 
And we talk yeah. about, we often these days, it's the verbiage around it is big T trauma and little T trauma. Having, losing your son to knife wounds in the neck would be a big T trauma, uh, no doubt. Yeah. And then you've got the little T trauma. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to try again. I'm, this is a, such a sensitive topic. I, this is probably the most stuttering yeah. show I've ever done because you don't want to <laughs> offend anybody because it's so difficult. And, you know, I think we tend to, um, you know, want to support people in whatever your trauma is, is, is relevant. You know, obviously sometimes it's not a life altering trauma. And, and there may be right. some times where we get into victim mode too quick with something that, you know, in essence, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But to the point of this, when you talk about that massive thing, are you putting it, are you being inclusive of the big T and the little T thing? I mean, cause somebody's out there who there, there's a kid out there who had their heart set on Harvard and they are not going to go after all these years, it is not going to happen. They cannot do anything else. It's a flat out no. And it's devastating. Now we would call that a first world Absolutely. problem that they can even, you know, have the opportunity to go to college at all. And they didn't get into Harvard. Oh, woe is me. But it is, it's something that they had their heart set on. We can't, we don't need to minimize, doesn't help anything to, and they are devastated. It is a massive trauma that could derail them the rest of their life. They could go forward thinking I am a failure or life is unfair. And we're back to the meaning that we attribute it to. So is that a fair depiction of how you are looking at this massive thing that we all have them and then we all have the ability to feel as we feel about them? Absolutely. And I, there's so much to unpack in that question. First of all, I, I want to make it clear here that I am a brain surgeon. I am not a therapist or a grief expert, and 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 I'm not trying to tell you what your grief's going to look like. Um, I'm trying to show you what it was like for me. I would cite you as a the, grief expert, but I get the uh, I get the the. the well, I'm, I mean, I'm not the guy that writes the book right. about how you recover from grief. Right. I, I'm, so my, I only said that to say this, like. I, I try to, to discern, I want you to discern, friend, wherever you are listening to hear us in the world right now, discern the fact that whatever pain you're feeling is your pain. And whatever hard thing that you're going through or have gone through is your thing. And just because there's somebody next to you that had something worse happen to them, your grief is is not relative to somebody else's. It's in fact, there's a law of physics, uh, the law of gas diffusion, where if you put a gas in a room, it expands to fill the entire space or the, or the smallest container or biggest container that you can put it in. And that's why that you can put a rotten egg in the kitchen and you'll smell it in the whole house eventually. You know exactly what that smells like. It's also why you can smell your mom's perfume from down the hall because those gases expand. And that's what I, that's kind of what I see about grief in my mind. Like whatever your trauma is, whatever your pain was, it's going to fill you up for a while. And you can see your, your example about somebody not getting into Harvard. You could also probably look at 40 year old alcoholics and a subset of them will be guys that thought they were going to play in the NFL and they tore their ACL in high school and, and it never happened. Right? The, so the death of a dream is a very legitimate trauma. It's absolutely devastating to some people. And if you can't pivot, like we said earlier, like for me, like 
it could be the thing that happened in my life or it can be a thing that happened in my life. And so you got to be able to to grieve properly and heal from it, but also still find meaning and purpose and pain and, and passion and joy and happiness and all those other things in the rest of your life. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely. Small T trauma is not small T if you're the sufferer. We In surgery, we say, people say, well, is this a minor procedure? And I say, well, every procedure that somebody else is having is a minor procedure. And every procedure that I'm having is a major procedure. So to look at that, not judge it, would you say? Not judge the pain. The pain's a pain. You feel it, you feel it. Not minimize yeah. it, not judge it and uh, allow that. Give yourself permission to to grieve that. But then we are into how to grieve that. Well, obviously, we all want to be able to be have a level of resilience and go forth. And to that, so now yeah. I, I want to jump to that other aspect too. Yeah, because I don't, I don't like the perspective of justifying the trauma because of the redemption, even though I love the redemption. And I look at that and go, John uh, uh, Lee, you would likely not be here on this show, helping me, helping a lot of other people without the death of Mitch. It gave you, what would you say? It gave you, strength that gave you insight it gives you it gave me some purpose uh, and i'll tell you i can i can exactly unpack that for you so yeah. before mitch died i was a neurosurgeon and my life was defined by i mean my, my faith in jesus and, and my family and all that was was my identity but my my if you said who's lee warren i'd say oh, i'm a neurosurgeon it was that's what I did. That's was that's what I was known by. After we lost Mitch, I I really don't even know how it came about, but it it started being this this mission of mine to send an email to my kids and my family every day to just try to encourage them in some way, and that led to people sharing it, and it kind of like it happened when I wrote home from Iraq. It started getting shared around, and people started reading it, and, and that happened with my grief, kind of my how we're going to get through this together kind of notes to my kids is it became this newsletter that became a podcast that all this, because I realized at some point that when you're in this really dark place and you find a little bit of light, somebody behind you needs you to reach behind and, and grab their hand and help them find it too. And, and I, Lisa and I talked about it a lot and we were equipped to talk about it. We understood the, I understood the neuroscience of what my brain was doing to me when I was grieving. Um, and I just felt this, mission to honor Mitch by helping other people make it a little bit farther down the path after they'd lost somebody or had gone through something hard. So, so I think that's, that's part of it. It, it, it definitely um, became motivating for me to make my life something more than I could be as just a neurosurgeon. Cause I realized I can help, I'm going to do 350 surgeries this year, right? So I do 30 years of neurosurgery. I'm going to do 10,000 operations or whatever. And that's the the sum total of the people I can help with my hands. But if I can put something out there 
in this podcast that your, your people are listening to or in a book, I might be able to help a million people or 10 million people. And so I thought, well, what would Mitch be proudest of? He would be, he'd be really proud that I did a bunch of good surgeries, but he would be really proud that if I helped somebody from killing themselves because I gave him a little bit of hope. In that, again, not to justify the thing, but it is redemptive that it, so again, whatever that massive thing, whatever that, that trauma is, that thing to grieve, that it only right. comes by proxy of wanting something, kind of back to that expectations. So if you don't want to grieve anything, if you don't want any trauma, then don't want anything. Stay in your home, stay safe. Don't do it. The moment you want something, you yeah. have the ability to be disappointed or the moment you walk out your door, you have the ability to be a victim, to become hurt in some way. So if you're going to do right. that, something's going to happen to you. We're not going to justify that, but it, I, I really don't like the word should. What's a better word? It, it, but it should, in essence, uh, help me if there's a better way to say it. it should give you, it should enable you to. A byproduct does is it, it enables you with something you wouldn't have had otherwise that you can use. That's a redemptive thing. That doesn't mean it's a redemption that That's justifies right. it. But That's right. Okay. I, I think that's the I think this refining is is a word. I I realized when I read that passage uh, in Isaiah where it says I'm going to put you in the furnace of suffering. Like I realized, like you actually, if you think about it that way, grief or pain or the loss of a dream or whatever you want to call it, your bigger little T trauma. Again, I don't think anybody has a little T trauma from their own perspective. But it's if you if you look at it. You say this feels even just look at the neurochemistry of it. What happens when you're really hurting? It feels like you're on fire. It feels like you're going crazy. It feels like your mind's going to explode. It, you, your heart's racing. Your mouth is dry and you just feel out of control, right? You, you, you feel devastated and, and you feel those things because your brain is doing something to you. And, but what happens over time is you, you realize at some point I can, I got to get this under control and I got to figure out how to heal from this. Or it is going to destroy me. And so I've, I said, if I'm in this furnace of suffering, it's either going to burn me up or it's going to refine me in some way. And I want to be refined by it. And that's where I came up with that, that thought about the, um, your brain on drugs. Remember those car, those uh, commercials oh, yeah. from, from the eighties, like yeah. you would watch MTV and they would show this skillet and they would say, this is your brain. And then they would crack an egg and say, this is, or the, the skillet is you know, your brain and the egg is your drugs. And, and this is your brain on drugs. And they would watch the egg fry up and your brain's all fried to a crisp. And, and I thought of that as a metaphor of like, like trauma is the skillet. And your brain gets thrown in there, your life gets thrown in there, and it's going to cook you up. And you have a you have a choice. You can get pulled out of the skillet when it's a, a fried egg that somebody could eat and still has some value, some nutrition, or some some purpose. Or it can just sit in there and cook so long that it's just burned up and charred up, and it's yeah. just useless and and burned and killed. And so I think that that's a pretty good word picture, a pretty good sight picture of when, when trauma puts you in the skillet or puts you in the furnace, you got to get out of there at some point, but you're not going to be like you were before you went in there, Kevin, you're going to be changed by it. It's going to chemically alter you. It's going to change the arc of the rest of your life. It's going to change your family. Like I said earlier, one of your kids doesn't wake up tomorrow. You now have eight and not nine. 
your family's going to be different mm-hmm. than it was before. No matter how well you grieve, no matter how much you change or how, how sad you are about it, your family's going to be different. And so this process, redemption is a good word. It, it doesn't take anything away from the people that suffer things when they find another way forward to find purpose. I think adding that, that thought process of the person I lost or the person I thought I was going to be, that there was going to be this NFL player or whatever, that person would want me to, to still be the best person I could be in this life, still tell the best story I could tell in this life, still do the most good I can do in this life. And that's what's redemption. That, that That's what's refining. And who wants to say this thing happened and it destroyed me when they could instead say this thing happened and I found a way forward and it's part of me, but I'm, I'm a better person than I was. I think that's the bottom line. I'm a better person than I was before Mitch died. And I'm a better person because I'm trying to make him proud of me. Uh, Okay. That's a better way of that. That that helps wrap that up, uh, that aspect up a little bit. Cause I was sitting here thinking, you know, that I look at some stuff and go, you know, whatever, whatever it is that that sucked, but I might as well get something out of it. Uh, Some redemption, some refining, but that you're a better person. You know, I remember uh, having John O'Leary on the show years ago. He's uh, folks, if you don't know that his first book was called on fire. He was burnt uh, like 99% of his body. No way he should have lived. And he did. And I asked him the question. I don't know what the, I can't remember the, what the preface that got me to ask question, but you know, if you had to go back in time all over, what would you do? And he, he says, I, I would be burned up. Uh, I had a really hard time accepting that. And I'm still going to put that off as a unique thing. Cause there's a lot of the things that have happened in my life that I wouldn't even say are that trauma, the traumatic necessarily, but I, I, I would not choose even with the redemption. I would not choose those things to have happened, but I am grateful for yeah, for the redemption. Um, you know, this, I, I hope we've done justice to the book, folks. There's a lot to get into. I think, you know, out of the five parts, I feel like we've, we've played around in two of them. So, you know, go get the book. Uh, <laughs> if you want to increase your hope, go get the book. But I do want to land on one more, and this is a quote out of it. Trauma doesn't define us. Our choices we make after the trauma do you wrote that and i was curious about the word choices i would have i think i have used in place of that the trauma doesn't define us our 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 experience around it you know how we take it which you said and our beliefs around as a result of it uh but use the word choices and i'm going to ask you to unwrap that a little bit well, I think it, it again, we, t- we touched on two parts and the, and the, and the, the choice part comes later when I teach you something that I call self brain surgery. Yeah. And the, the basic, the basic premise is this and self brain surgery is a, a funny thing to say if you're not familiar with neurosurgery, but the fact is you can actually change how your brain works by changing how you think and, and you literally can change every cell in your body and the generations after you by thinking about different things. So that's a whole nother story. But, but the choice piece comes in this, you have to realize it's, it's a buzzword right now. Almost everybody's saying, think about your thinking, think about the things that you think about. And, and what happens after trauma is trauma tells you 
it will never be different than this. You can never overcome this. You can never survive this. You, you know, this is all your fault. Whatever those things are that you hear, all of us have that negative voice in our head, as Dan Harris says. What happens is you have to make three decisions. You have to make three decisions if you want to recover from trauma well and be okay. And here, these are choices that you have to make. Number one, you have to decide to believe the fact from neuroscience that feelings are not facts. Because mm. your brain makes you feel a bunch of things and feelings point to stuff that may or may not be true, right? You feel fear and you think it's because there's a bear coming down your hall, but there's not really a bear. It's just somebody banged into a pot or something. So you, but the, the neurochemical trigger makes you feel the same thing as if there really was a bear, right? But it's not true. So feelings aren't facts. Feelings point to things that may or may not be true. And so you have to decide that that's a true statement because after major things happen, you're going to feel a lot of things. And a lot of them are demotivating or devastating or depressing or will make you want to drink yourself into a coma. The, a lot of those feelings, my life's never going to be okay. I'm, I'm not a good dad. I can't be a, my wife's going to leave me because this happened. Those things usually aren't true. So number one, feelings aren't facts. That's a choice you have to make, Kevin, to, to know that that's the fact. It's not, feelings are not always facts. Number two, five to one, the thoughts that you think are generally not facts. And they're generally not true. And they're generally overly negative. So you have the decision-making power to choose to think different thoughts than your than, than the ones that pop into your head. And after grief, that's incredibly important to learn how to take control. Second Corinthians 10, five says, take captive every thought. Don't be a victim of the things that pop into your head. And especially I can tell you after your son dies, you're going to think a lot of thoughts and most of them are going to be, I should have been there. I could have done something. I, I, I don't know why I didn't see it coming. How could I have been such a bad father? How, you know, this is my fault. None of that stuff is true. You have to learn how to acknowledge that not every thought you think is true. I call it the, the thought biopsy because I'm, I'm a brain surgeon. So I'm always biopsying stuff and look at it under, look at, looking at it under the microscope. And, and if, if you told me you had a headache, I would say, well, it's probably a brain tumor. Let's go to operate. Let's, let's go take you to surgery and cut your head open and get in there. You would say, wait, time out. Right. Shouldn't you do a scan or shouldn't you gather some data before you make the decision on what to do next? Uh, you know, I just told you a symptom and you're telling me you want to do brain surgery. That, that'd be crazy. It'd be malpractice, right? So th the truth is when a surgeon wants to know whether something's bad or good or cancer or benign, they'd biopsy it. And that's how, I, that's how I see this getting your thoughts under control idea. So look at it critically before you respond to it. And after trauma, all your thoughts go crazy. So that's the second decision. Feelings aren't facts. Not every thought is true. The third one is you have to relentlessly decide that you're not going to do things. Hear me, friend. This is important. After you lose somebody, after this massive thing happens, you're going to want to numb yourself to the pain. You're going to want to do some, to develop some behaviors and habits to make yourself not think about it. People use alcohol, they use drugs, they use sex, they use gambling. They, they do all kinds of things to try not to feel it. But all of that is malpractice against yourself because at the end of the day, you will not heal and you will not recover and you will not begin moving forward until you make a decision that you're not going to participate in your own demise. You've got, 
you can't, like my friend said, you can't have a 200% mortality rate from one death. And that's where I would leave it. That The choice piece is that you have the agency and you have the power. And by the way, the scientific definition of hope, the people who research hope, they define it as having agency, which is the ability to do something about the situation you're in and pathways, which is the, the legitimate way that you can move forward and find the way to get from here to there. Hope is the ability to, to the belief that you can get there from here. So if you have agency and pathways, those are the choices that you have to make that you can get better. It is possible because other people have gotten better and hope is, is repeatable and reliable. If you learn to make those three decisions and then make the choice to move towards it. That, uh, that's a great way to wrap it up. Folks, if you want to tune in to just what he said, uh, to hope and finding more agency and a pathway, I very much encourage you to get the new book that's sitting over my shoulder here on the video. Uh, hope is the first dose, the new book by Dr. Lee Warren. And it is going to be a top shelf book of mine, along with the last book that you're on the show for Lee, which is I've Thank seen you. the end of you. And we'll also really encourage you guys to tune in to Lee's podcast, uh, the Dr. Lee Warren podcast, which uh, I think I'm going to be fortunate enough to be on with you soon. It'll be fun to continue yep. this conversation. Lee, man, thank you for coming back. Thank you for the work you have done to be refined by something that could have been the end of you. I'm grateful. Thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate you. It's an honor to be back with you. Friends, this is part one with Lee Warren. Following this episode will be my values and habits episode. And Lee and I get even further into deep, but hopeful water. Lee's book again is Hope is the First Dose, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. And you can find Lee at his website. Look for Lee Warren. Friends, thank you for tuning into Self Helpful, where I curate the sea of new personal development materials and help you integrate wisdom into your life because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. 